0: I pay homage to the Buddha, I pay homage to the Dhamma, I pay homage to the Sangha. So in a few hours, I'm going to be attending a memorial service for my friend Dean. You see, Dean passed away uh, last year, early last year, uh, around March. And he was a friend that I had been uh, fairly close to, and then we, we had drifted for a bit, and we hadn't seen each other for a couple years in person before he passed away, and it was quite sudden. And because it was a friendship that existed on social media and you know, I don't really use social media that much these days anymore. It took me a couple of weeks to know he had actually passed away, and he and he passed right as things were were shutting down due to COVID. So that's why, after all this time later, uh, his husband, who survived him, is the one who has put together this memorial for him, and that's where I'll be today. And so because of that, I I knew that I was going to be talking about death today because how could you not? It's going to be on your mind anyway. Just go ahead and talk about it. The thing is, though, it can be very difficult to talk about death. A lot of people don't like to hear about death. We'd rather ignore it. We think of it as a very taboo thing that if you even say it out loud, it's going to come find you like the boogeyman. And sometimes, even when talking about death is precisely why you're there, it can still be kind of a tricky thing anyway. You know, last year I attended a couple uh, death cafes. I don't know if, if, if all of you know what that is, but uh, it's this sort of grassroots thing that, that people do. It's all voluntary, and anyone can do it. You can uh, facilitate your own death cafe and, and uh, schedule it on the website. The website itself is Death Cafe, and people can come together and have a frank discussion about death. Talk about all the things they want to talk about death. Now, they're clear to point out on this website that it's not group therapy. People are not processing, in a therapeutic way, their issues with death. It's meant to be a frank discussion. But let me tell you, if you come in there as a Buddhist, with uh, a considerable amount of comfort with death, ooh, will you shut down that conversation? Now, I can't speak for all of you, but that's kind of what happened with me. Where the ones I've attended, it wasn't meant to be group therapy, but it was a lot of people commiserating. And uh, if you come in like me with an attitude of like, well, I actually don't mind it, it's okay. Ah, man, you can hear a pin drop. I mean, it was on Zoom and everyone was muted anyway, but I think that still, I kind of silenced everything. No, no one really had much to say once I said my piece about about being comfortable with death. And that is a tricky thing, because uh, the Buddhist attitude uh, around death, at least in the uh, early Buddhist texts and in the Theravada tradition, is this uh, strange um, tension between two points. On the one hand, death is one of the messengers, right? We know that old age, sickness, and death are precisely the kind of things that the Buddha didn't think was all that good about life. And one of the things to be overcome, in fact, liberation and unbinding is precisely so that you can get to the undying, to a state of unborn and thus undying. No suffering, no stress, unbinding, liberation. But then on the other, because the path itself is a gradual one, there might be a few deaths along the way. Within this lifetime, friends and family, acquaintances, even people you don't like all that well, they're going to pass. And then, of course, because you've been born you will pass too. And, you know, if you subscribe to the view of rebirth, then I probably got a few more to go before liberation's attained. And so, on the one hand, we seek to transcend death, but on the other, we're very much trying to have an openness around death. We're not really embracing it, but we're not really pushing it away either, right? Because aversion itself is just another form of craving. It's the craving for non-becoming. Right or craving for becoming or all the kind of things we want to push away and have in certain ways and either way the way and no matter how you cut it it's a kind of craving. So since death can be kind of tricky I, I didn't really want to go about it the way I did when I went to those death cafes and talk about eh, well it doesn't really bother me all that much because I'm not really sure that's that's very helpful. But recently I was with some friends of mine who are who are Buddhists as well. And I was talking about the memorial coming up, and my friend Dean, and I was also uh, just talking about death in general, and the conversation went that way into just death in general. And this question came up, if it was possible to have uh, a good death, what does it mean to die well? What does it mean to have a good death? And we we shared some ideas, and you know, we, we had some stuff that we pulled from Buddhist scriptures stuff from our own experiences, our own understanding of things, and I wouldn't say there was a consensus, but we were sharing some ideas. My own take is that uh, there is absolutely a a good death that we can have, a a way of dying well, but I think that it's very much tied to uh, living well, because if death is an unavoidable part of life, that to be born is to die, then the only way to to die well is to live well. And that's the stance that I took. And so that's the approach I want to take today in talking about about death. Not as its own thing, as this big, monolithic, scary thing that we often talk about it as, but talk about it it as it is as a part of life. So we might say that this is a talk about how to live and die well. And i want to frame this around uh, a particular sutta in the anguttara nikaya there is a sutta called the dhana sutta it's anguttara nikaya 7.6 so it's in the grouping of sevens now dhana has a dh in front of it so it's not dhana like generosity but dhana means treasure or it can also mean wealth or riches and so in this sutta the buddha is talking about Seven treasures. And they're treasures very much tied into living well. But I'm also going to frame it in terms of approaching death and dying well. And there are seven of these treasures that the Buddha calls. And he says that there's the treasure of conviction, the treasure of virtue, the treasure of a sense of shame, the treasure of a sense of compunction, the treasure of listening, the treasure of generosity and the treasure of discernment. Now you'll notice that some of these are things that pop up quite a bit in other various lists in Buddhism. We have the whole 37 qualities, the Bodhipakya Dhamma, and uh, a lot of those lists are groupings of the same kind of things. So we see conviction a lot, conviction uh, being a kind of faith, but different than faith, which is why it's translated as conviction by some. Uh, Virtue being sila, you know, uh, the precepts and things like that. Generosity comes up a lot, discernment as, as wisdom, punya. Now, I do realize that because of, of Western culture, we have a tendency to pull back a bit from a sense of shame and a sense of compunction. So I'm also going to talk about those. I might even spend a little more time on those because it's, it's really not that way. In the West, we have a tendency to view shame as guilt. And guilt itself is a tricky thing, especially for those of us who come from a Christian and or Catholic background. Now, a sense of conviction, right? This I I talked about uh, previously last month, where uh, conviction, uh, or if I didn't talk about it last month, I did talk about it recently, Uh, conviction is... Is sometimes translated as faith, and that's something that that some people can can struggle with because they think that faith means the same kind of faith that many of us went away from in in Christianity or whatever Abrahamic religion or any religion where where faith in, in deities is uh, is mandated, uh, you know, said to be something that one needs. Now there is that aspect of faith that or conviction that is about the Buddha as a teacher, as someone who is rightly self-awakened, rightly a Buddha, rightly a Tathagata. But more importantly, it's the fact that he was able to become unbound, become liberated, that he was actually able to overcome defilements, effluence, to reach the other shore, by his own power, by his own will, by his own efforts, by his own skillfulness. Thus meaning that he as a human was able to do this, we being humans too are able to do that. So we have conviction in that way. Which, for me, gives me a sense of purpose in life. A path that I am following based on that conviction, based on that belief that my actions matter that the things i do beginning with the mind thoughts being a kind of action matter that not only is there bad that can result from my actions but good a lot of things that i can do for myself and others right that in itself when we build that up becomes something quite freeing on its own there's often talk of opening the dhamma eye the first taste of liberation is often just having that strong sense of conviction, right? Recognizing that we can be free, we can be liberated. We can overcome greed, aversion, delusion. Now, we also then have virtue. And the way the Buddha talks about this is those same five precepts many of us are familiar with. There is the case where a disciple of the Noble Ones abstains from taking life abstains from stealing, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from lying, from taking intoxicants that cause heedlessness. Right? This is the, ver- the treasure of virtue. And I'll admit that when I, I first came to, to Buddhism, and even as I was practicing it for many years, I did struggle with the concept of precepts, because I was working against that view that they were a lot like commandments, things dictated, things... They were forced upon people on how to behave and how to think and how to act. But in, in truth, uh, we see that the, the very drive to follow precepts, to take on training precepts, comes from within, comes from inside us, not from without, not dictated from above, but within us. And that's why I'll, I'll move on and spend a lot of time talking about the sense of shame and sense of compunction. Because like I said, we have a tendency to think of shame as guilt, right? Uh, my, a lot of my family members are Catholic, and so there's that old saying about Catholic guilt that people feel. And the truth is, shame in this, in this way doesn't mean that, right? We use shame because shame means recognizing that there are uh, harmful things and harmless things that we can do. Same with compunction. In Pali, these two terms are hiri and otapa, and I bring them up because when we talk about shame and compunction, those are English words that have their own meanings, their own, their own baggage that we carry with us in our experiences. What's interesting about hiri is that, yes, it can mean shame, but it, it kind of means like a, like a shyness as well that you shy away from what's unskillful. You shy away from things that are are harmful because you recognize the things that are harmless and the things that are harmful. We might call this, rather than shame, having a conscience, a sense that our actions have uh, an impact. Our actions actually have a causal relationship with ourselves and other people. So rather than thinking of it as shame in the form of guilt, we can think of this sense as a sense of having a conscience, right? Each one of us has our own little Jiminy Cricket hanging around somewhere in there telling us some things here and there about our actions. Now, the way these things come up a lot of the time can be tricky because, for example... If I think of shame as guilt, what ends up happening for me is I can look at someone like my friend Dean, who I didn't see two, three, maybe more years before his passing, except for online. And part of that was because I thought that there was more time. That's one of the tricky things about death. We never know when it's going to come. So you spent a couple years not seeing a friend, and you think in your head, well, you know, I'll get around to it eventually. I'll get around it. And then, oddly, I found out that he had passed away because I was sitting around thinking, you know, it's been a while since I've seen my friend Dean. I should probably, you know, reach out to him and see if we can hang out in some time in the future once all this pandemic stuff settles down. You remember at the beginning when we thought all oh, this was going to be over in three weeks or so, maybe a couple months? So that's what I went to do. I thought I should reach out, see how he's doing, and I found out he had passed away. And so there can be this, this this sense of guilt that like, well, why wasn't I a good enough friend to go see this guy? Like, why didn't I reach out? Why didn't I try I to make more effort in being a good friend? But if I look at shame in a different way, seeing it as, as conscience as it relates to virtue, remember that both both shame and compunction relate to virtue. They're tied to this. What I can see is that I may not have seen Dean as often as I would have liked, seen my friend as often as I liked. But if I was following the precepts, if I was taking these training rules seriously, if I was taking virtue seriously, then I can at least have a sense of integrity in terms of our friendship. That the times I did see him, the times that I was around him, they were times when I was attempting to be skillful in thought, word, and action. And so even though I didn't know the last time I spoke to him would be the last, and I didn't know the last time I was, I was in his presence would be the last, I can at least take some pleasure and delight in knowing that I was heedful and skillful in those interactions, right? And then we, now we have a, a reason to follow the precepts, beyond simply thinking of them as, as, like a, as a moral code put upon us, but something that we can carry into everyday life, recognizing that our actions, beginning in the mind and going outward into physical action, have the ability to be harmful or harmless, right? to be harmonizing or destructive. And that's why the Buddha broke that up into qualities of skillful and unskillful. And we can see that in that way, that we can approach those interactions we have with others in light of the impermanence of our human condition. Because we don't know when someone else is going to pass away, when someone else is going to die, and we don't know when we're dying either. So we not only don't know what our last action, what our last word is going to be to someone else, we don't know what our own last actions are. And our last words are going to be. But if we try, attempt, to live each moment skillfully to the best of our ability where we are right now in the path, we at least have that. That assurance that allows us to approach death without regret. And I think that's one of the things that catches us up. That when we we look at these things... We end up regretting, right? When you look at compunction, it's something very similar to hiti, right? To this sense of shame, compunction can can be translated a few ways. Othapa can be translated uh, in one ways in some ways is um, trying to remember because I already said ah concern, yeah, concern for ourself and others, and we can see combined together with hiti and otapa as a sense of conscience and a sense of concern what we're really getting at is empathy empathy which is far different than a sense of guilt right a sense of of wrong that hangs over us like a shadow but a sense of empathy that we have for our for other people and ourselves what we're really getting at then is compassion goodwill metta karuna these qualities that we have because we can see then cause and effect we understand kamma, right? We understand the way karma works then. Kamma vipaka, cause and consequence. And so our concern then is for the consequences of what we do. And together we see that, that we want to approach death with a mind at ease, that we understand then that we have done our best, right? That, and even when we have... Made mistakes. We've tried in some way to repair them. To live with a sense of integrity, a sense of responsibility, and who and who who we are and what we do, right? And then I th- I see that then as a very beautiful way, because it's important to approach it that way, you know. During the during the Buddha's time, as he was approaching his own death, you can read this in the Sutta, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, where the the Buddha is talking to to other monks, but he's also talking about himself, his own approach to death. And he reminds his monks, don't, don't approach death with this feeling that like, oh, well, how will the Sangha survive? Who will lead the Sangha? Who's going to do all these things? I need to be here, and I need to do this, and I need to be... Because that itself is a form of clinging. That's a form of, of holding on. One of the things we tell ourselves, because we all think we're the main character in our own book, is that we're too important to die. That things don't carry on after us. And if we're not there to take care of everything well, man, how's it all going to go? All right. In fact, I'm reminded of a story where there was this woman who had stayed at a monastery for a long retreat. She had been planning on staying for a couple of weeks. And she, uh, after only a few days, began to to worry about her family. Like, oh, well, you know, I'm... I'm the one who stays home and cooks all the meals and takes care of the kids and cleans the house. How are, how are they all going to function, you know, without me there? And you know, this was uh, a while ago, you know a while back ago when that was more common for, for women to be the, the the you know the carer of the home, you know, to take care of everything like that. And so she she approaches the teacher, says all these things, and then the teacher looks at her and says, "Well, when you're here meditating for these couple weeks, uh, imagine you're already dead." Because you'll realize that they're going to have to manage without you once you're gone anyway, right? So you might as well figure that, you know, when you're not around to take care of certain things, it'll work out. People will have to pick up the slack one way or the other. And so in terms of virtue, in terms of, of uh, Hidi and Utapa, these qualities of, of conscience and concern, what we then see is that we, we do the best while we've got the time to do it. We, we try to have concern for others, conscience for others, try to have empathy, right? Goodwill and compassion for ourselves and others. But then when it's time to go, it's time to go. We can't view ourselves as too important to die, right? Because no one is. If the Buddha wasn't too important to die, right? I think pretty much you can't count us in that category either, right? That, we, that we're going to approach it, but we want to approach it with a clear mind, We don't want to be grasping backwards because we want to think about what comes next. Now, for some of us, we might might not think that there's a next. We might not think that there's actually rebirth and you might be born in a different realm. But there's a practical side to both of those. There were times when monks would minister to people who were passing away. And they would would approach these people and, and try to nurture them, support them, help them through this tough time. And there's this one story of Sariputta who went to go visit a, a Brahmin. And he sits down with this Brahmin who's passing away. He's, he's approaching death. And the Brahmin asks Sariputta, please, Sariputta, I want to go to, to one of the, the Brahma heavens. Please teach me how. And Sariputta agreeably teaches this guy how to get to the exact heaven he wants to get. Right, And afterward, he feels pretty good about it. The guy passes away. He goes back to where he was staying with the Buddha, whichever Vihara they were at. And the Buddha asks, "Oh, I, I know you want to go see that Brahmin who's passing away. How to go?" And so Sariputta tells him, "Oh, you wanted to go to one of the Brahma heaven heaven realms, and I taught him how." And the Buddha says, "Well, why would you do that? You know, you should have encouraged him for something even greater than that, something even higher than that." And so that ends up being the kind of encouragement that the Buddha would prescribe for those of us who are uh, sitting by by the bed of someone passing away. Is that what we want to do? Is is not be someone who encourages them to dig their claws into this world and want to hold on for even 30 seconds more of life, but we actually want to make it easier for them to to go, to give them ease and peace of mind so that they can not go into something panicked, something with regret where like, "Ah, I should have done this and I could do this, or I want to go here to this particular place, that what we find out that what we want to lead people towards and what we want to lead ourselves towards is relinquishment letting go. And we can see that that concern that we have, that conscience we have, is also about ourselves in that regard. That we end up seeing that relinquishment actually, ironically, leads to a better happiness for us as we go about life, holding things in a lighter way. Relinquishment becomes important because it's that craving and clinging, that holding on, that resisting, or wanting things to be a certain way that gets us caught up and so the path ends up becoming much about letting go in that way. So that takes us to the treasure of of listening, right? Which is, hey man, something we're all doing right now. Already gotten a head start on this one. This is there's a case where disciple of the noble ones has heard much, has retained what he or she has heard, has stored what she he or she has heard. Whatever teachings are admirable, admirable in the beginning, admirable in the middle, admirable in the end. That in the meaning and expression, proclaim the holy life that is entirely perfect, surpassingly pure. Those he or she has listened to often, retained, discussed, accumulated, examined with his or her mind, and well penetrated in terms of his or her views. That is the treasure of listening. And that is also something that I attempt to do in living well and dying well, to make my life as much as possible about the Dhamma. And, you know, oftentimes when we see someone who's, like, super religious about things, we tend to think of them as kind of a bummer, you know? But I would say that following Buddhism in this way, where I do try to make as much of my life about the Dhamma as possible, man, seems to be working out for me so far. Seems to be working out out for people around me, too, right? Like, my wife will tell you that Buddhist husband is the best kind of husband, right? This sort of weird monkish husband that she's got, she seems to like him just fine, right? And we do find that listening well to the Dhamma means that we're able to apply it well. The Buddha talks about the Dhamma as a kind of medicine, right? And what you do when you learn how to take a medicine is you don't just put it back on the shelf and ignore it. You don't read all the instructions go, ah, so that's how this medicine works, and then put it away to, to be covered in dust. Once you know how to, take, how to take the medicine, then you take it. What that means is that when we learn the Dhamma, when we learn how to practice it, we then put it into practice. Right? We do it in terms of virtue. We do it in terms of concentration. We do it in terms of wisdom or discernment. Right? That's the path. And then we see how that becomes a way of living and a way of dying, following the path, because it leads to skillfulness. And you live skillfully long enough and with, with enough effort, you know what you find is that you end up reaching the goal. Right? You end up finding full unbinding liberation. And that's a worthy thing to do. It gives life purpose, which for me is important to have meaning and purpose, because that means then that death has meaning and purpose for me in that regard. Okay, so the last two, generosity and discernment, right? Well, these are for me combined, because uh, we don't want to have what's called uh, dummy generosity or or stupid generosity, right? Where you just give everything away willy-nilly. Before you know it, you're walking down the street and your boxers, don't even know where your wallet is, and you gave your car to someone and you're just walking around hoping to find a bus that'll let you in with just your boxers. You don't want to approach it that way either, right? Generosity and discernment have to be combined together. So we have wise generosity, wise giving, wise gifting, wise ways of, of helping others, right? The Buddha talks about generosity as being magnanimous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms and so on. So what that means is that we don't have to really seek out more ways of, of giving. We're not, we're not in a process of bloodletting, just bleeding ourselves dry. But what we do is leave ourselves open to the possibility to help others, to help ourselves, to see how we could do good in the world. And that ends up being a good way of, of being generous, right? And that's coupled with discernment, which discernment itself can be translated as wisdom, but wisdom sometimes seems too airy. It's kind of like, you know, what are we trying to be, Gandalf, open up some book with spells and stuff, trying to get real penetrating gnosis and stuff like that. But discernment is something that we've all got. It's the ability to, to look at things and analyze them, to have a directed thought and evaluation towards what we grasp in our mind with mindfulness and concentration. And the Buddha talks about it this way. There's the case where a disciple of the Noble Ones is discerning, endowed with discernment of arising and passing away, noble, penetrating, leading to the right ending of stress. This is called the treasure of discernment. So what the Buddha is getting at is our ability to discern in all moments, all instances, in terms of our actions, the Four Noble Truths, to recognize stress and suffering, to abandon its causes, Right to realize the cessation of suffering and to develop the path that leads to that cessation. That's how we really, truly discern arising and passing away, the kind that leads to the right ending of stress. So, looking at all these treasures together, these seven treasures, I see for myself a way of living well and dying well. And sure enough, no matter how you cut it, what we're really talking about at the end of the day is the Noble Eightfold Path. This is just another way of looking at it those same things that we're trying to develop and this is the way the buddha talks about it he ends with a series of verses uh, poetry right a song the treasure of conviction the treasure of virtue the treasure of a sense of shame and compunction the treasure of listening generosity and discernment as the seventh treasure whoever man or woman has these treasures is said not to be poor has not lived in vain so conviction and virtue, faith and Dhamma vision should be cultivated by the intelligent, remembering the Buddha's instruction. And that's what I'm attempting to do with my own life. Remembering the Buddha's instruction so that I have not lived in vain. So that my life then becomes purposeful. So that my actions and the mental training that I do serve a purpose. right? The purpose of, of my liberation and through that helping others, encouraging others to also themselves find liberation. So I'm going to end this talk here. I'm going to dedicate the merit of this talk to my friend Dean, wherever he may be. Hopefully it assists him in his journey, wherever that is. Thank you for listening. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to share. Thank you.